The following podcast is brought to you by the Village Sendo. For more information, visit villagesendo.org. So, good morning. Thanks for coming out, those of you in the Sendo and those of you online, um, to join us this morning. Especially appreciate everyone trudging here in the mid 20 degree temperatures. Uh, very nice, very warming to have you here with us. And my name is Bokshu. And uh, this is going to be a talk in three parts, three times, three parts, three different places, three different times that are here right now. What separates what we think of as having been in the past from now? And what separates what we think of as being in the future from now? How do you actually experience time? What is your understanding of the unity of time and space? It's a pompous question, but what about it? What is your experience and understanding of the unity of time and space? And speaking of pompous, do you expect this talk to be a smooth talk? A seamless talk? What are your expectations for my performance in this talk? This is not a show. This is not something you bought a ticket to. And this talk may not be so smooth. There's some sort of tea called smooth move. It's actually a laxative tea. This is not a laxative. Seriously. Um, do you expect this talk to be transcendent? What would transcendence look like? Jordan, I think we're a little hot. Can you turn just slightly? I'm hearing reverb. Thanks. What would transcendence look like? Would it look like the past being in the present? Would it look like the future being in the present? What exactly is the present moment? We're always talking about that, right? The present moment, the present moment. I've got to be here in the present moment. What is exactly the present moment? So, all my anxiety about giving you a smooth talk, believe me, I do worry about it, leads me to a question. How do we factor compassion into our expectations for ourselves and others? And my experience of it is a little like this. Have you ever put on a t-shirt backwards? You thought you were putting it on right and you got it on and it was backwards. 
And you know what that feels like? A t-shirt is really a very simple garment, but if you put it on backwards, it's incredibly awkward. It's just incredibly annoying. You have to take it off and put it back on the right way. And that is what compassion for myself feels like. It's just like a backward t-shirt. Except, of course, the t-shirt is on right. It's just that my perception of it's backwards. And we're always yammering, you know, not only are we always yammering about the present moment, we're always yammering about compassion. Well, what the hell is it? Roshi once said something to me in an interview I've never forgotten. I can't remember why it came up, but she said, compassion doesn't mean giving somebody what they want. We think we know what it looks like, just like we think we know what time is, what yesterday is, what tomorrow is, but we don't. And that's really interesting. That's where it gets juicy. So I'm struggling with the backwards feeling of compassion. Are you struggling with that sometimes for yourself, compassion for yourself, whatever you understand that thing we're always yammering about to be? And of course, there's a question of what do I mean by myself? What is that? What's the thing I'm supposed to have compassion for? And how is that separate from the past and from the future? Let alone the present. But one thing's for sure, folks, I want it all to be perfect. I want it to be smooth. But what would that look like? It is tragic how we do this to ourselves, is it not? How we always want it to be better, different, faster, stronger. Remember that TV show? Those of you who are old enough, the Six Million Dollar Man. We can rebuild him. We can make him better than he was before. If you're too young, look it up on YouTube. Lee Majors, it's really stupid. I think it went on for quite a while though, this idea that they could take a person and put all these things and machines in that person and make them perfect. We're kind of going there now, aren't we? Why is it that we constantly torment ourselves about things being better than they are? Do we actually know what we're talking about? I don't think we know what we're talking about, but that doesn't generally stop us from tormenting ourselves about things being better than they are. Better for who? Based on whose judgment? So I've thrown a lot at you. (laughs) Are you with me so far? Because there's a lot more. Um, I haven't even gotten to the three parts, the three times that I said I was going to talk about. So part one, the sidewalks of Mexico City. I've been in Mexico City a fair amount over the last year, never mind the reasons. And it's a huge place. If you've ever been there, it's, it's 
really extraordinary. I mean, it's one of the biggest cities in the world, and there's a lot of exciting stuff to see and do, and there's a lot of struggle and poverty. So we as tourists, you know, can notice that as well. But there was something that struck my attention in Mexico City that I don't think is normally what people pay attention to there, and that is the sidewalks. If you go in the residential neighborhoods in Mexico City, including the so-called better ones, you will notice that the sidewalks are all broken up. They're like tectonic plates thrusting up into the sky. And the reason is that they're all planted, you know, these, these sidewalks have plantings, they have trees. And so when they laid these sidewalks down, they weren't counting on these trees doing what trees do. Trees grow, and when they grow, their roots get bigger. And when their roots get bigger, they tend to push and spread and sometimes go up. Roots don't always go down, they can go sideways and up. And so what's happened is these sidewalks have gotten demolished by the trees. And I guess they don't have the budget or the wherewithal to take the sidewalks out and redo them. And what do you do actually? You know, you've got this giant root where a sidewalk ought to be. So what, what do you do with that if you've got a sidewalk and a root like that? I don't know. So they just, they just leave them like that. And it's, it's fascinating to see the condition of the sidewalks. So uh, this is something that really got, got my attention. And I go back to the question I asked you originally, do you expect it to be smooth? The sidewalks are the way. That's where the people go. You are here because you are on the way. Do you expect a smooth sidewalk? No roots, no gaps, no angles, no edges. I mean, some of these things are so mountainous, you could kill yourself on them. I don't know what people do. God forbid you should be in a wheelchair. You would never make it. But there's something beautiful about the fact that we humans have spent all this money to smooth things over, and then nature just screwed it all up, and we're defeated. Either you chop down all the trees and repave the sidewalks, or you just leave it, and they're just leaving it. And sometimes they paint the edges. And this is quite beautiful. One place, almost like a butterfly, they've taken these delicate colors and they've painted the edges of these massive blocks of concrete that are sticking up with these beautiful colors, blue and yellow and red, almost iridescent, like a labor of love. It was like an art project. And that reminded me of the second time and the second place. When I was growing up in the Midwest, at a certain point in my rather solitary youth, I decided it would be a good idea to collect butterflies. 
I don't know how I got the idea, but once I got the idea, I was in, I was in love with it. <laughs> so I would get a mason jar with some paper toweling on the bottom and some lighter fluid. It's pretty gory, you know. I have a lot of karma to work off. And I would go around with this net, running after him, and I'd get one and do the whole process of getting the insect as carefully as possible into this jar full of toxic fumes and watch the poor thing struggle and die. And then would come this whole pinning process, you know, you have to pin them so their wings are spread out because if you don't, they're all compressed. And I can't imagine how many butterflies gave their lives to me in this crazy pursuit. And I'm not the only person who's ever done this. I mean, there's a whole, the read Lord Jim about Stein, Stein and his, <clears throat> his insects. Of course, he was in the tropics and there were much more fabulous specimens there. But whatever there were in the Middle West, I was after them. And uh, it was kind of a mania for me. What exactly was there in this for me? I mean, I feel like it's like the sidewalks. I wanted to preserve these beautiful objects, have them readily at hand, have them perfect. And right in my hand, no struggling with the insect, no chasing it over fields, but it's right there, perfectly pinned, perfectly ready, perfectly preserved. And I think that's a real strong impulse we have, isn't it? We want the perfect thing. We want the perfect experience. We go to dinner, we want the perfect food, the perfect service, the perfect price, right? Let's not forget that part of it. The perfect cocktail and so on. So even though I feel a certain shame in recounting my youthful exploits, I think I'm in a lot of company. It isn't about a butterfly or a cocktail or a sidewalk. It's about our continual war with reality, our continual desire to improve, preserve, hold on to the best possible experience, the best possible version of whatever it is we're doing. And guess what? This causes us suffering, right? I don't like this. It's not enough. It's not good enough. It's too late. It's too early. It's too tall. It's too short. The wrong fabric the wrong color. It just goes on and on and on. And I get it because I'm right there with you. And maybe you're thinking about that, about this talk. It's too long. What the hell is he talking about? I don't get it. Why doesn't he shut up already? I get it. But this is how we suffer. And this is why we're here. This is the whole purpose of us being here, in my view, is to learn to see and tolerate 
reality. And um, there's a koan that somehow came up for me about this. I'm just going to go through it quickly. Case 18 of the Blue Cliff Record. National Teacher Chung's seamless monument. Emperor Su Tsung asked National Teacher Chung, after you die, what will you need? It's interesting, isn't it? He asks him what he'll need after he dies. Doesn't ask him what he'll need while he's alive. The national teacher said, <clears throat> build a seamless monument for me. The emperor said, please tell me, master, what the monument would look like. What does it look like? This perfection that we're constantly tormenting ourselves to find and hold on to. If it kicked us in the ass, would we know it? How do we know that whatever is kicking us in the ass isn't exactly the perfection that we're after? Please tell me, Master, what would the monument look like? The national teacher was silent for a long time. Then he asked, do you understand? The emperor said, I do not understand. When I was earlier in my practice, I used to think about these koans that the teacher was there dispensing this wisdom that that person was the greatest. You know, well, there's this ignorant monk, doesn't get it, he's so confused, and he's going to get enlightened by this line from this teacher. And now I really have completely reversed how I look at it, I think the monks who ask these questions are the heroes. We blind, clinging fools, I say we, are the heroes of this story of delusion and suffering. We are our own teachers. So the koan goes on. I'm not going to read all of it, but there's a verse in it. South of Shang, north of Tang, in between there's gold sufficient to a nation. Beneath the shadowless tree, the community ferry boat. Within the crystal palace, there's no one who knows. Ain't that the truth? There's no one who knows. And yet, when you go out of here and you walk to Sixth Avenue and it says don't walk and the cars are streaming by, you're not going to walk. So, something's going on. 
and it ain't mystical. It's practical. Part three. Last week, uh, we had a wonderful talk by Muke. I hope you have a chance to listen to it. Um, and Muke's talk made me remember a friend who I hadn't spoken to for quite a number of years. Call this person once in a blue moon. It's very capricious, but that's kind of what I do for her. And <clears throat> so I called her and two people answered the phone. And um, that confused me. But uh, then I started to talk to the person who was my friend and it quickly became apparent that something was different. She was having trouble forming sentences. She was having trouble even finding whole words. She was sometimes a little coherent, often completely incoherent. I've never had a conversation like this where the person could not get the words at all and couldn't remember from one sentence to the next what was going on. Uh, she didn't know who I was. She thought I was someone else. She had a story about the other person, totally not applicable to me, but, you know. And at a certain point, with blinding clarity, she said, I have Alzheimer's. In the midst of all this, it was overwhelming for me. This is actually a very intelligent, talented, accomplished person who has done some amazing things, uh, who I admire greatly, and who happened to have been incredibly nice to me while I was chasing and murdering butterflies. And now this is where she is. And I thought her speaking was just like the sidewalks. Is there a problem when the words won't come? Is there a problem when the sidewalk is broken? What is an obstacle and what is a gateway for you? We all have to be open to the possibility that exactly what we dislike the most is exactly what we need. It's possible. So while we're so busy not liking things and critiquing things, let's keep that in mind, all of us, I include myself, let's keep that in mind that the shit that's happening right now might be just what I need. And in relation to this, um, conversation with my friend. There's a 
bunch of lines in our study text. I want to really put in a plug for our study text. If you haven't read Dogen's Uji, The Time Being, you absolutely must read this. I mean, we've read it a number of times in the community over years, and I've had to read it again, of course, because it's our study text this ongo, and I'm just blown away by how amazing this text is. So do go to our website and read it. And in it, it says, among many other things, for the time being, mind arrives, but words do not. For the time being, words arrive, but mind does not. For the time being, both mind and words arrive. For the time being, neither words nor mind arrive. I don't know whether my friend's mind or words are arriving or going. But I do know that my heart was opened by her struggle. And that I had an opportunity to reflect directly on my own fear of what might be coming for me in 30 years. Fill in the blank, right? We don't know. These three places, these three times are right here. There is no separation between right here in Mexico City, between the butterflies of the 1960s, between the mind of a person who cannot find the words. And yet, somehow, she does find some words and she does know what's going on with herself. We do want it to be perfect, but in the midst of that, we can appreciate what we actually already have and open ourselves to our experience of exactly what is happening now. I have found it to be immeasurably supporting to, me, to myself to, to say in moments of great trauma and stress. This is exactly what is happening right now. Try it. The next time the shit hits the fan, try saying that to yourself. This is exactly what is happening right now. It is a fact, right? Facts are very supportive. So, I'm going to close with a verse um, from the koan I was talking about earlier, the seamless monument. It feels as if I really didn't address that. Build for me a seamless monument. The verse goes, the seamless monument, to see it is hard. A clear pool does not admit the blue dragon's coils. Layers upon layers, shadows upon shadows, forever it is shown to people. Thank you. <laughs>